special thanks to Juliet um, and to the choir. Um, if you guys have, yeah, thank you. Definitely. If you guys had any idea how hard they were, um, they were here all day yesterday. I kept watching, and uh, I don't, the last person left last night at like 11. I don't know who it was. Probably Minzy. He's always here. Um, but you guys put in a lot of time and effort, and we, we really do um, appreciate that. Um, here, here at Woodside, um, we, we believe that the Bible contains the, the very words of God. All right? so, so if that is the case, right, then what it says is significantly more important um, than what I say. So, so every Sunday morning, what we do here is we take a passage of the Bible and we explain what it says. So every Sunday since I've been here, we've been working through the book of Mark, explaining who Jesus is and what he has come to do. But this morning, one time, I wanna, we're going to take a brief um, break from Mark, and we're going to do something a little bit differently here for a few minutes. Um, this morning, I want to talk about the real meaning of Christmas, right? I want to talk about the star of the show, the center of attention. This morning, I want to talk about Santa Claus, all right? <laughs> I'm kidding a little bit. I'm kind of kidding. Just, just, just bear with me. I'm going to explain here. Um, before we get into our passage, um, I want to set the stage by explaining something um, important. Right? Because there are, there are all kinds of religions, all kinds of philosophies and worldviews and ways to live out there. So, so I believe in Christianity. You may believe in Islam or Buddhism or atheism or whatever it is. But you may think, what everyone thinks these days, that basically, whatever you believe is okay for you, whatever I believe is okay for me, you know, you know, true for you, but not for me. You can believe whatever you want, right, as long as you kind of believe it with all your heart, right? It's this idea that all these religions basically teach the same thing, right? Well, I want to address such claims with what I call the, the Santa Clause of religion, all right, you get it? You get it? It's, it's a play on words, all right? It, it's a pun, right? It's, clause is his last name, right? But a clause is also like a, it's a part of a contract or a stipulation or a condition. Now, I didn't come up with that. Um, I stole it from the brilliant um, Santa Claus movie starring the great Tim Allen. Um, so if you've ever seen that, that's, that's, that's what I stole it from. But I, I think this is, this is important because I think understanding Santa Claus and how he operates will help us kind of to understand other religions and their difference from how Christianity and Jesus operate. Because, listen, this is what I want to explain. If you think about it, every other religion basically functions like Santa Claus. All right, I want you to think about it. Think about Santa Claus. All right, let's be completely honest. He is terrifying. Terrifying, right? Think of some of the songs. Right? What's the song? Everyone knows it. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Right? Oh, he's coming. But what's he doing? Uh-oh. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He is going to find out who is naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. And it gets even worse. He sees you when you're sleeping. What? He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So for goodness sake, you better be good. Right? Absolutely terrifying, if you think about it. And now it's getting worse. Right now, he's got all these little agents that do his work for him. Right? Have you seen these things? They're all arranged these days. They're called these little these elf-on-the-shelf things that sit on your shelf. Well, what do they do, apparently? Well, they watch, and they see everything that you do, and then you go to bed, and they fly back to the North Pole, 
and they tell Santa Claus all the good things and all the bad things that you have done. Right? Yeah, you better watch out because he is watching out and he sees everything. But this is how Santa Claus works. You do good things, he rewards you with good things, like toys or, or whatever it is. But if you do bad things, right, he rewards you with, with coal or whatever that, that thing is. It's that simple. If you work hard enough, if you be good enough, you earn good things. Right? That's Santa Claus. And that is the Santa Claus of religion. Because follow me. Because this is basically how every other religion and every other worldview operates. Right? Every other religion basically teaches you this. And basically teaches, treats God as Santa Claus. Right? God is up here. He's far up to the north somewhere. He's watching. And if you do good things, he'll reward you. But watch out, right? He, he's ready to drop the hammer and punish you if you do bad things. Do good things, go to heaven. Do bad things, go to hell. Work, earn, do enough good to outweigh your bad, and God has to reward you. Right? So every religion gives you a list of things that you must do to save yourself. And just like Santa Claus, it is, it's terrifying. It is demanding, it is exhausting, and it is impossible. But what I want to look at this morning is how Christianity is the only religion that is different. Jesus is the only one that does not operate according to the Santa Claus. Right? So I want you to see how Jesus is utterly unique compared to everything else out there. And how his message is the exact opposite of Santa Claus's message. So if, if you're tired of trying to be good enough, if you're always falling short, then Jesus is for you. So I want you to take out your Bibles, take out the pew Bible in front of you, and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Someone who finds it first, holler at me and tell me the page number. I forgot to look. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, to help everybody out. What page we got? What was that? 587? 857. Sorry for not looking that up. Turn to 857 in your pew Bibles. We're going to look at kind of like this is the classic Christmas text. All right, I just want to draw a few short truths from this text um, for a few minutes. So Luke 2, verses 1 through 21. Follow along as I read. This is God's Word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Jesus, Joseph, also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, 
glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's, let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you um, for this beautiful day. We thank you for the choir and their hard work. We thank you for their um, focus, not only on the music and on their excellency, Father, but on, but on Jesus Christ and on the gospel. But Father, right now I pray that that would be our focus. Speak to us. Um, through this text, pray that your spirit would work in this room on our hearts. Um, convict us of sin, grant us faith and repentance, and then point us to Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, there's just, there's just so much in those 21 verses that I want to cover. But I'm going to have to kind of pick and choose a few things out of there so you're not stuck here um, all day. Um, in the first kind of seven verses, really quickly, we, just, we read about the circumstances of this baby's birth. Right? In chapter 1, it is very clear that this baby is unique. Right? He, he's special. Right? And that fact is made very clear there in verse 9. That's where I want to focus on the, in the second part of the passage. So Jesus is born, and then the story shifts um, to, a, to a bunch of shepherds out in a field tending their sheep. And then the most remarkable thing happens. Right? An angel shows up. An angel. And we have we've neutered angels these days, right? We think they're nice and, and cute and cuddly, right? They always have flowing, curly hair. Sometimes they're babies. They always seem to be carrying a harp uh, floating on clouds. They're nice and, and safe and cuddly angels. But that is not how the Bible describes angels, right? Angels, angels are scary, apparently, according to the Bible. Every time an angel shows up, people fear for their lives. Right, but this, this, this angel, he, he calms them down. He says, fear not. But it, it's not even the fact of the angel's appearance that is that remarkable. It's the message that that angel brings that is the most remarkable thing. Look at verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. First, I want you to notice that this angel's announcement is called news. It is called good news. And this is something that you will hear us say every Sunday from this pulpit. Right? In, in the Greek, in which this book was originally written, right, that word for good news there is evangelion. Right? It's, it's, it's the same word that would become the title of these books about Jesus. It's, it's the word gospel. Gospel means good news. The angel has come bringing the gospel. The angel has come announcing the good news. Right? And right away, here is, is one of those things that sets Jesus and Christianity apart from everything else. Every other religion gives you a list of things to do. Right? Every other religion is instruction. Things that you do and accomplish to be saved. Right? Christianity is the only one that is different. This, this message is not instruction. This message is announcement. Right? It, is, it is news about something that God has done for us. 
And that is an extremely important difference. Religion is about something that you do. The gospel, the good news, is about something that God has done for you. Right? So what has God done? What is this big news? That's, it's there in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here's the news. Somebody has been born, and this someone is three things according to the angel. Three titles. He is a Savior, he is the Christ, and he is the Lord. Savior, Christ, Lord. Now that is big news. Let's, let's start with Christ. Right? Jesus is called the Christ here. And we've, we've been talking about this repeatedly for the last few weeks in Mark. So I won't spend too long here. But Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's not. His, his name is not Jesus Christ like my name is Matthew Shores. No, Christ is a title, right? It is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah, all right? Christ just means Messiah. And Messiah simply means anointed one, right? In the Old Testament, a Messiah was someone who was anointed with oil, and they were anointed kind of symbolically for the purpose of, of setting them apart, for, for marking them off to do something specific for God. And there were three classes of people that were anointed in the Old Testament. Right? There were prophets, and there were priests, and there were kings. All three were anointed and set apart for, for specific tasks. But... If you, if you kind of sit down and, and read and start to work through the Old Testament, right, it starts to become really clear that, that there, was this, there was someone special, right? There was someone unique that was on the way, someone that God was going to send. And this person would not be a Messiah. This person would be the Messiah. This person would fulfill all three of these offices in one. He would be prophet, priest, and king all together in one person. And there are numerous prophecies over and over again about this person, who he would be and what he would do. All you have to do is go back and read the Old Testament and you can learn a whole lot about Jesus before he was born. Right? The Jesus of history fulfilled all of these prophecies made hundreds and thousands of years before his birth. And that right there is one of the things that I love about Christianity. Because Christianity is a religion that is based upon History, right? It is about historical fact. It is not concerned with what you think or what you feel or what you believe or what your opinions are on the matter. It is concerned with facts, right? Either Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, was born into the world 2,000 years ago or he wasn't, right? There, there is no middle ground, right? And if that happened, it changes everything, and if it didn't happen, right, this Christmas service was a waste of time, and we all look pretty silly, right? There's, there's no middle ground. It's not just a nice story. It's either true or it is a terrible lie, right? But I want you to notice what the shepherds do when the angels come and they give them this news, right? They don't just kind of sit back and say, ah, oh, you know, thanks, angels, thanks for telling us, and then they kind of sit around and continue to do nothing, no, look, look at verse 15. They say, let's, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Let's go and see. Right? And I love that. Right? That's, that's what Christianity is, is about. That's why historical fact is so important to our faith. Because it either happened or it didn't. And the shepherds go to see whether it has. 
No other religion can say that. No other religious book goes to the great lengths that the Bible goes to, to root itself in history. Right? Christianity is a religion of history. It can be checked out. It can be researched. It can be verified. We can learn all of these amazing things about Jesus as the Christ long before he was born. Right? Because he is the Messiah. The Messiah was the long-awaited deliverer. The one who was going to come and rescue his people. Right? But we're going to come back to that in just a second. So he's the Messiah, but that's not all that he is. He is also the Lord. Right? And the title Lord points to Jesus' deity. It points to the fact that he himself was God. Right? Already by this point in the book of Luke, right? we're only in chapter 2. So in the first chapter alone, Luke has used the term Lord 12 times already. But so far, he has always used that term Lord to refer to God. Right? This is the first time ever that the titles Christ and Lord are, are brought together in this way. Yes, he is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the deliverer to come and rescue his people. But he is also God. And this is so critical. Because every other religious leader or founder came and pointed the way toward God. Right? Jesus came and pointed toward himself. Right? He doesn't tell you how to get to God. He tells you that he himself is God. And nobody else makes this claim. Jesus was God taking on flesh and coming down to us. He was given the name, the title, Emmanuel, which just means God with us. Jesus Christ was literally God with his people. Jesus is the, the image of the invisible God. Atheists. Ask some atheist friends. And they, they love to make the argument that since we cannot see God, Right? That since science hasn't yet mathematically proven to us God's existence, that he, he cannot exist. But this is a terribly weak argument. Right? God is not some physical property that is kind of waiting to be discovered by science. He's not just kind of lurking around somewhere up in space waiting for our telescopes to find him. Right? Our relationship to God is not like some scientist on earth here trying to discover some alien in distant life. Like if you just look hard enough or if you had a nice enough telescope, you'll eventually discover him. But our relationship to God is more like Shakespeare's relationship to Hamlet. Shakespeare's relationship to Hamlet. How much can Hamlet, a character that Shakespeare wrote about, how much can Hamlet know about Shakespeare? Only what Shakespeare writes about himself into the play. Only what Shakespeare reveals about himself in the story to Hamlet. There was a woman about 60 or 70 years ago, kind of the middle of the 20th century. Her name was Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers. She was one of the first women ever allowed to attend the great University of Oxford. Right? Oxford, maybe the best university in the world, over in England. Where it was all male for the vast majority of its history. And this, this Sayers lady, she was one of the first women ever allowed into the school. She, she goes through it, she does really well, and she becomes, uh, ends up becoming a, a, a very celebrated and famous author. Right? And she was a great author, and she actually wrote a lot of really good detective fiction. Well, 
One of her series was called the Lord Peter Whimsy Stories. This is kind of one of her famous detective series. And the main character, Lord Peter, he was a rich and successful detective. He always solves the case. But he was also single and he was terribly lonely. But if you get to read through the series, what is interesting is that all of a sudden, kind of halfway through the series, a tall, not particularly attractive woman named Harriet Vane shows up in the stories. Right? And Harriet Vane is one of the first women to ever attend the University of Oxford, and she is a great and famous writer of detective fiction. Right? And the two fall in love with the story. She comes in and gives his life meaning, and they live happily ever after and, and solve detect, uh, mysteries together. What's going on here in this story? Well, well critics and kind of people who, who read and study Sayers, this is what they think. It seems that Dorothy Sayers had kind of looked into her story. She looked into the world that she had created. She looked at, at the character that she had created. And she had pity on him. She saw his pain. She saw his brokenness. She saw his loneliness. She, she cared for the character that she had created. So what did she do? Dorothy Sayers wrote herself into the story to save her character. Right? The author wrote herself as a character into the story. She entered into her own story to save the character that she had Created. You see, that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. God looked into the world that He created. He, he saw the trouble that we had caused, all of our pain and suffering and loneliness, and He cared. And He cared enough to write Himself into the story to save us. So, so Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, was born to live and suffer and die in our place. And that's what Christmas is all about. That is what we are celebrating. It is God writing himself and entering into our story. It is God himself showing up and coming to fix our problem. So Jesus is the Messiah, but he is also God himself. He is the Lord. But finally, just as we hinted at, as the Messiah, as the Lord, he is also then the Savior. Right? He wrote himself into the story, not just for fun, but to rescue us. The beginning that we read there of Luke chapter 2, it opens up with Caesar Augustus. Right? Caesar Augustus was a real person. He is one of the most powerful and one of the greatest leaders in all of history over one of the, the greatest and most successful empires in all of history. And he is, he's really famous for bringing about what is referred to as the Pax Romana. All right? The Pax Romana just means the Roman peace. All right? It was a famous period of, of about 200 years where there was relative kind of peace throughout the whole empire. Kind of. Right? There was, if you know anything about Rome and Roman history, there was a lot of peace for some, right? The elite and the wealthy and the powerful. But there was a whole lot of oppression and fear and suffering for the rest. But even for the privileged few who had that peace, right, it was only an outward peace. Right? They did not have inner peace. They did not have rest 
for their souls. At this time, there was a, there was a famous Roman philosopher named Epictetus. Right? And he lived right at about the same time as Luke, right? when Luke, who, who wrote the book that we're, that we're reading. And Epictetus wrote this kind of around this time. He says, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. The emperor cannot give us peace of heart, for which man yearns more than ever for outward peace. That is an amazing quote. And that quote applies just as much today as it did 2,000 years ago. The emperor can give us outward peace, but he can do nothing to give us inward peace. You live in the most peaceful, secure society in the whole of history. You live in the richest, most comfortable society in the whole of history. Most of us have access to plenty of food, money in our pocket, a warm place to sleep, um, entertainment, security. America in the year 2013 has got it all. Outward peace in abundance. But, surprisingly, or, or not surprisingly, depending on your perspective, while we are the richest and most comfortable society in history, we are also the most miserable and depressed. We have a lot of outward peace, but we have the least inner peace ever. We have achieved all of these amazing things. We have all of these great advancements and, and medicines and, and technologies and drugs. We, have, we, we fail, though. We accomplish all these amazing things, but we fail over and over again to come up with any remedy, any peace whatsoever for our passions, our griefs, our envy, our insecurity, our fear, and our depression. Wealth cannot provide you peace. The government cannot provide you peace. America cannot give you peace. And you may have come to this country in hopes of, of pursuing a better life, and good, we're glad you have, and I hope you find it, but you will find no real peace here. I don't care how much money you make, I don't care how big your house is, I don't care how many great things you have, those things will never give you peace. Deep down, we all feel what Epictetus has pointed out. No matter how much we achieve or accomplish or gain, we never find peace. Because, according to the Bible, those things were never designed to give us peace. The angels burst onto the scene 2,000 years ago, and they tell us where to find it. And they say, God, God has revealed to us the good news through them. No, you won't find peace anywhere else you look. Right? It is the one that is being born, the one that we celebrate on this holiday, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. He is the one who brings peace. Peace on earth, the angels proclaim. And they're not primarily talking about um, an end to war, though that will come. They are talking about the peace that Epictetus and every single one of us so desperately desires and so desperately searches for. You can keep looking. You can keep working. You can keep trying to fill yourself up with all of these things. Money, success, sex, family, whatever it is for you. But none of those things will bring you peace. Because at the root of it, your lack of peace is a spiritual problem. And material and physical things can never solve a spiritual problem. 
Your lack of peace is a result of your separation from God. A, a self-inflicted separation. We have all, likewise, separated ourselves from God by our sin. Right? Those things that we do in, in disobedience to Him. Those, those things that you feel guilt for, even though no one else knows about them. Right? That, that guilt, the existence of that guilt, proves that there was someone to whom you are accountable to. Your problem is not sickness or poverty. It is not that your marriage is falling apart. Your problem is that you have made yourself an enemy of God. Your problem is that you are a sinner, a, a criminal in God's eyes. And just as we expect criminals today to be punished, God must punish spiritual criminals as well. Crime must be paid for. So you have two options. Either you pay for your crimes yourself, as you justly deserve to do, or, and here's the good news, or God pays for your crime himself. And that's what the angels have come proclaiming. That's what the good news is. That's the gospel. And this is what Christmas is all about. It is God himself coming down, writing himself into the story to bring you peace. To, to take your place and pay the penalty that you deserve for your crimes. It is a story of substitution. It is a story of salvation. Jesus is the Savior. I am a sinner. I deserve to die for my countless sins. We all know that we're not good enough. We all know that we're not reaching this, this, this standard. God would be perfectly just in punishing me for my sins. But the good news is that 2,000 years ago, a Savior was born. He became a man, like me, so He could represent me. He was like me, except He was without sin. He was like me, except He was also God. And that is extremely important. That's why He must be Lord. Because only God can save us. A prophet cannot save us. A teacher cannot save us. Only God himself can save us. If, if Jesus wasn't God, he was nothing. As man, he had the right to stand in my place and represent me. And as God, he was infinitely valuable and, and able to pay the unimaginable debt that I had built up. Because of my sin. Only God could do that. Man and God together in one person. That is Jesus Christ. If he was not fully man and he was not fully God, then, then he has accomplished nothing for us. He has to be man to represent us. And he has to be God to be worthy enough to pay for our unimaginable debt. That is the gospel. It is Jesus in my place. That's the gospel in four words. That is what Christmas is about. That is why this is such a big deal. It is, it is the very coming of life into the world. It is the celebration of the birth of the only one who can bring us peace. Colossians 1.20 says that Jesus has made peace by the blood of his cross. You owed blood. You owed your blood, your life. He gave his blood and his life in your place. And he offers you peace. He offers you rest. He offers you life eternal. And all He calls us to do is to repent. 
to, to give up trying to save ourselves, to turn and go the other direction and follow Him. And then He tells us to believe, to, to have faith, to trust in Him. And that's it. He does all of the work. Right? We, we cannot save ourselves, but He can. I want to close by, by going back to the shepherds. I, I will never ask you to, to, to just take my word for things. Right? Don't just believe all this because I said it. Do what the shepherds did. Let's go and see. Check it out. Right? Explore Jesus for yourself. Because again, it's either all of this is true or it's not. But you better make sure. Because if all of this is true, then this is the most important thing in the world. And you don't want to be separated from this. If all of this is true, then it is the answer that you have been looking for. And if you're here with us this morning, I want to, I want to personally invite you to come join us for the next few Sundays. Right? This is what we do every Sunday. We work through a passage about Jesus and explain who he is and why that matters. Right? I want you to come and, and listen and ask questions. Come find me after the service. I love questions. Come find me and I'll give you a Bible. Read through the book of Luke or Mark or John or, or just explore who this man is. The only thing that you cannot afford to do is to ignore Jesus. Everyone has to do something with him. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. And that is what we are celebrating this season. That is why the choir works so hard to proclaim that truth that the Savior has come. But always remember, Christmas itself is not the goal. Alright? Easter is the goal of Christmas. Easter is the point, right? He has not just come. He has come to suffer and die in our Place. He has come as our Savior to, to rescue us. And He is the only one that can actually do it. Now let's, let's turn to Him in prayer as we close. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You for sending to us uh, a perfect Savior who could stand in our place and represent us as a man and who could um, be valuable enough to pay for our, our great debt um, to You. Father, we all desire peace. We all have that, that something inside of us that is driving us and that we're longing for and that we're trying to fill with all these things, accomplishments and money and cars and big TVs and all these things, Father, we try to satisfy ourselves with, Father. But we know as hard as we try that it doesn't work. So, Father, forgive us for trying to, to fill the role that only you can fill with, with created things. Father, we thank you for, for sending the angels, for giving us this passage and this declaration of the good news that Jesus Christ has come, that he is the Lord, and that he is the Savior. Father, I pray right now um, that he would be doing that work um, in, in our hearts um, this morning. Father, convict us of sin. Father, save, save sinners, Father, and grant um, faith and repentance um, to those of us who, who need to continue to be sanctified. Father, we can do nothing apart from you. We, we cannot save ourselves. But 2,000 years ago, you, you acted. You stepped into the picture um, in the person of Jesus to rescue us from our sin. We thank you for that, Father. We, we do not earn it. We do not deserve it, Father. But you are a merciful and gracious and loving God. A God who pursues and saves sinners. And for that, um, we want to thank you. For all these things. 
in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.